This is Channel 253. In this episode of Crossing Division. The same way that we're trying to think about how to get affordable housing into the for-profit sector, so it's not just non-profits doing affordable housing, we need to be thinking about how do you do mixed income cities for the love of God. Channel 253 is sponsored by Alaska Airlines. I'm Nate Bowling and I fly Alaska. To book your next trip, go to alaskaair.com. Hi, this is Evelyn Lopez with the Crossing Division podcast. Hey, stay tuned for a very interesting recording that we made in Tacoma. This is the Downtown On The Go Friday Forum. This year, they're focusing on issues related to aging in Tacoma and Pierce County. And the first forum, which took place on January 24th, 2020, is on aging in place and talks about the challenges of finding housing, staying in your housing, and you know how people manage as they get older uh, to find affordable housing options and healthy housing options. It's a really good forum, very interesting, and we will follow it with our own Crossing Division podcast where we'll focus on some other aspects of housing. My name is Hallie. I want to welcome you all to the first Friday Forum of 2020 and also the first Downtown On The Go event of the year. Downtown On The Go is your transportation advocate and resource. And I want to first give a big thank you to Tacoma Arts Live for being our host and the series sponsor this year. And I, round of applause for Tacoma Arts Live. I also want to thank Geoengineers for sponsoring this forum in particular. And a thank you to Channel 253 for being our media sponsor. And they're recording this forum and we'll be featuring it on the Crossing Division podcast hosted by Evelyn Lopez. Um, and they'll be recording right after this for a deep dive in today's, into today's topic. So all of your friends and colleagues who weren't able to attend this forum can be part of the conversation throughout the forum series. So a round of applause for Channel 253. We're really excited to be growing this program. So a little bit of logistics. If you have a question throughout the forum, please text the number 253-392-7880. The number is posted up here. And we also have paper and pens in the back of the room. Um, So if you prefer to do that, you can uh, write on the pads up there and leave them and we'll make sure they get incorporated into the question section. So the Friday Forum series brings together experts and community leaders to reflect on transportation and land use issues that are facing our city. This year, we're focusing on how Tacoma and Pierce County will adapt to meet the needs of older adults. By the year 2030, there will be more people over the age of 65 than under the age of 18 in Pierce County. And so this adds to the already existing pressures of affordable housing and livability in this region. We are lucky to have Tanisha Jumper from the city of Tacoma as our moderator for the third year in a row here. Her leadership and vision have been integral to pushing the city of Tacoma towards ambitious goals around livability, transportation, and housing. She is the Director of Media and Communications of the city and has a wealth of experience in health and human service management and community engagement. So please join me in thanking our sponsors once more and welcoming our great panel with a round of applause. Thank you. Good afternoon. I see a lot of familiar faces, so thank you for joining us again for another series of um, Friday Forums. And for everyone who's new, um, it's painless, and uh, we're going to have a lot of fun. We have a great panel today. So um, like Holly said, I'm Tanisha Jumper, and I work for the city of Tacoma. Um, Just to start us off, a couple months ago, um, 
uh, we, the city of Tacoma passed a an age-friendly ordinance. And so we are also looking at how do we be more intentional around making sure that Tacoma is a great place to age and that people can age in place. And we'll talk a lot about that today. So to kick us off, I'm going to um, ask our panel to introduce themselves and and as few words as possible, because um, we've got a lot to get through today. I want you to tell us who you are and why you wanted to be here in, the, in this panel today and why that's um, important to you. And we're going to kick it off with my good friend, Dr. Medeiros. Uh, my name is Ali Medeiros. I am the director of the School of Urban Studies at the University of Washington, Tacoma, and assistant chancellor for community partnerships at the same university. So I wear multiple hats. I'm happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me. My name is Adrian Wilson. I'm a community activist. I work around food justice, uh, financial empowerment for African Americans, anti-racism, anti-oppression, anti-blackness projects. Um, I'm a mother of four. Uh, this uh, topic is important to me because I've been homeless. I was homeless for nine months. I know the gaps. I know I'm also intelligent. I also have a bachelor's degree. I'm resourceful, all of those things. And I'm here to tell you how and why um, some of these programs actually don't work. Thank you. Uh, Matt Santelli from the Pierce County Aging and Disabilities Resource Center. I've worked there for about 16 years, uh, both in the field doing client services and doing uh, public outreach and education events. And I'm happy to be here to kind of point out some of the challenges we face with our population aging and fanning out all over the county and some of the difficulties people face in the more remote areas of the county as they age. Thank you. All right, we're gonna kick right off with um, Dr. Medeiros. Um, in this, is this current state of the cities conducive to aging in place? So I've been given five minutes to talk about this. It really <laughs> requires a long talk. Uh, <laughs> Uh, so let me start by saying one of the challenges that we have, and that is that historically, most of our cities have learned how to segregate by every category. We have segregated by race and ethnicity, we have segregated by gender, we have segregated by income, and what, one thing that we haven't paid attention to that we actually do segregate by age as well. And the way the segregation by age has happened is both purposeful and not with purpose. One way is to think about all the, where you know the senior housings are and how concentrated they are and where they're located. The other one is to ask yourself, when a, when a county like ours, Pierce County, has a lower median age of population compared to its neighboring counties, what's the population of the old elderly in, in Pierce County and where do they live? Are they, are they distributed equally or not? And if you were to look up the map, and I'm happy to share maps with you, <laughs> uh, actually our elderly population is isolated. In other words, they are segregated by, and it's not income driven, it's across incomes. They are isolated in, in the way that some neighborhoods tend to have more elderly people than middle age and younger population. So families and younger population tend to go towards specific kind of housing. And if you think about it, it's a cycle we started. It's a cycle that we started with larger houses sometimes in lower density areas. The parents get older, the children leave the house. They're hoping that they will come back for Thanksgiving and for Christmas. They don't come back. <laughs> and then they, we just hang on to that and we hang on to our kids' rooms. Some people do downsize, but not everybody. So the whole idea of downsizing doesn't happen. So 
a series of neighborhoods gradually move from being family-oriented to elderly population. Meanwhile, the younger population, single and double income, but without kids, first to start in the central part of the city, wherever it's hip, when they have their first kid, they begin to think about, mm, uh, do we want to move or not? By the time the second child arrives, they are moving. Now they're not moving close to their parents, they're moving somewhere else. Smaller houses, different kind of structure. So notice how by economy and our, our thoughts and our aspirations that changes across generations, we create, create these layers of neighborhoods of segregated segregation. So here's the challenge. The neighborhoods that we inherited when we, or we built or we moved to it when we were in their 30s, we were in our 30s, have a specific kind of sidewalk, they have a specific kind of amenities. And as we age in place, we don't have the services that we need. We are far away from clinics. We are far away from all the services that we need as an elderly population, yet the city to everyone remains the same. We think it's the same city that we had 40 years ago, but now it's being experienced differently. Now the issue becomes, how does one deal with such a situation when we have these layers of age aging in place and being forced into one place, right? And what happens when you actually get taxed out of your household if you're a lower income person? Where you actually, your housing, your property taxes, even if you own, begins to push you out. Now, now you have to go further out somewhere else at your elderly age. So there's a whole bunch of stuff there that we need to sort of think about. The processes that we have put into place and we continue to put into place that segregates the population by age. Now, are there things that we can do? Absolutely. One of the things about aging and consideration of age is that people tend to think that children and elderly want two different things. But if you were to look at the health factor, intergenerational neighborhoods are the best. Meaning that even from the ADA requirement for sidewalks, children and elderly population are very close to each other. So if you build neighborhoods that's good for one, it's good for the other as well. And intergenerational existence actually prolongs everybody's life. So in many ways, we have the basic recipe there. Some cities tend to do something a little bit different. They tend to look at the value of pocket parks as opposed to big parks. And the way pocket parks work is the part, small parcels of land that will be made available to, to parks for everyone to spend an afternoon in. And if you go to one of the cities that I used to live in, city of Glendale in California, there are a lot of little pocket parks. And you will find out that the elderly population in the afternoon just simply hangs out there, plays chess and backgammon, and they interact with people who are going by. And that creates that level of life that essentially allows for this intergenerational presence. So there's a lot that we can do. Undoing segregation of any category is very difficult, but it takes will and it takes time. Yeah. It is not something that we can do right away. We just have to stay on top of it and commit across multiple generations to build the cities in a way that they are intergenerational and welcoming to every age category. And I'll yeah, stop thank that. So you mentioned that um, seniors would be pushed out. And so um, I want to jump over to Matt real quick and ask what happens, um, what are the challenges that exist for older adults when they are pushed out and live in rural, rural areas? Uh, thank you. It's truly challenging just thinking of the geography and the job that I've done over the years. Uh, communities as we had in Pierce County encompass uh, mountain communities, uh, Ashford, Elby. We have saltwater communities, Heron Island. We've got Raft Island, Fox Island, Anderson Island. We have lake communities, Lake Taps, Bonnie Lake. 
So when you think about all those areas, there might be a few small towns kind of sprinkled in those areas, but a lot of it is just unincorporated county areas. And as the doctor was saying, a lot of clients who live there decided to live there as kind of their last move. You know, they're in retirement, they moved to a mobile community, or they bought some land and put a mobile home on it, or they might have found a nice house to live in. And that's fine as long as they're physically and mentally intact, but when one spouse becomes ill and the other one becomes a caregiver, or a spouse dies and then that remaining spouse starts to decline, the challenges become huge. There's uneven terrain in those areas. It's difficult to walk. There's no sidewalks. There's not safely walkable streets. The distances to travel require having a reliable car. There isn't any public transportations in places like Buckley, in Ording, Eatonville, Lake Bay, Long Branch. So you're forced to rely on reliable transportation or knowing somebody that has reliable transportation. So just imagine if you were living in Tacoma, you took a fall, broke your hip, and you were told the closest hospital you're going to go to is in Eatonville or in Long Branch or Buckley. That's what people in those rural communities face because the closest hospitals we have are Puyallup, Lakewood, and the Tacoma Corps and Gig Harbor. So potentially a medical emergency that a person might face is going to require them to quickly be uprooted from their community. The friends and neighbors they might have likely aren't going to go see them in the hospital. And then it becomes even worse if they have to go and do a skilled nursing facility rehab, because then you're coming even closer into the urban core. So those are challenges right there, where a medical emergency is not just an inconvenience, it becomes a huge uprooting of your day-to-day -day life. The other thing we see out there is that the homes that people do live in aren't easily adaptable for accessible needs. It's not easy to put up a ramp when you have stairs and uneven terrain. It's hard to put up grab bars in a very no, narrow mobile home. So as they age and their problems become greater, the adaptability of their homes becomes less and less. Also what we see is the social isolation that occurs because the viewability even of neighbors in some cases is very little, if sometimes none at all, just because of how the properties are configured there. Your mailbox might be several hundred feet from your house in some of these rural areas. So we don't even have the advantage of a mail carrier coming to your house and seeing that there might be something wrong. So potentially we have seniors who take a fall, who get ill, and no one might know about it for days or even weeks sometimes, depending upon the situation. And then think about the inclement weather we had the last few weeks. An inconvenient for us here locally, a huge disaster for people in some of the mountain and outlying communities where they had several feet of snow. So we see that breakdown in a lot of the rural areas where something as basic as a septic system that's never been properly maintained fails. Or there's well water and there's mechanical failure. Or there's extended utility interruptions for somebody who might be on oxygen or some other mechanical device that keeps them alive. Those produce medical emergencies. And again, if you're fortunate enough even to have a doctor in those communities, typically they're already overwhelmed with the number of patients they're seeing. And you don't have accessibility to specialists. There's not cancer care. There's no cardiac care. There's no dental or routine vision care. So again, we're seeing people having to get reliable transportation, travel long distances for the most basic levels of care. And so then we're needing to rely on local churches, senior centers, health ministries when they exist. 
We try to impose programs when we can. We can get people eligible for care programs, but with the economy the way it is now, the availability of caregivers is very limited. So we can approve someone for services on Anderson Island, but we can't find caregivers to meet their needs. So those are some of the overall challenges we face. Rural communities, the need for cars, lack of public transportation, limited services, difficult accessibility to the services, and not having the ability to provide professional care just because we don't have the resources that we can stretch wide enough to meet the need. Thanks, Matt. So Adrian, Matt kind of talked about the people who made a choice to move out to these rural areas and, and maybe because they didn't want to experience urban living and some of the other things that come with you know just wanting a different pace of life. What about the people who live in neighborhoods in Tacoma that are displaced without having the resources to just pick a new place to live? What, what happens to them? So first and foremost, I also want to let y'all know that I'm going to be me when I'm up here. I'm a cusser. Cussing is my love language. <laughs> Hallie told me that was okay and that I could be myself. I'm unapologetic for who I am, and I, and I am relaying my information to you not through lived experiences, but also through research. First, I got interested in being in displacement and gentrification when my mother was displaced. She is 66 years old. She lived in the same apartment for 17 years. A company got to come in and wipe everybody out within 20 days. They raised the rent over $500, and there was absolutely nothing we could do about it. There was absolutely nobody, no organization, no place we could go to ask them to help. There was nothing. So when she tried to find a new place to live, because of her age, she, made, she works, so she made too much for a retirement home and she didn't make enough for the three times a month worth in pay, in pay. So she was stuck, and so she ended up having to live on couches and everywhere else. So then I also ended up facing also being displaced. My, my landlord also raised the rent, and I also didn't have nowhere to go. And so I'm letting y'all know that when you become homeless, the first thing you're supposed to do is call coordinated care. You can't receive any services until you go through them first. And they either say yes or they say no. And how would they say no? So if I call you and you're coordinated care and I say that I'm homeless, you, the first thing y'all you would ask me is where did you sleep last night? If I say I slept in my car, I won't receive services. If I say I slept on someone's couch, I won't receive services. If I slept in a motel, I won't receive services. The only way I was able to receive services was when I said I slept on the concrete with my children. Okay, and then when I finally got in, I got to see Catholic Community Services, and they have a shelter, and they have laundry washing machines there. Can I use your washing machine? No, but I came to you for services, but you don't live here. Well, can I live here? No, we don't have any space for you. There's no motel vouchers. There's no grocery vouchers. There's no shower vouchers. There's no, there's no, there's nothing. There's not even rental assistance. So if someone like me, able-bodied, minded, resourceful, educated, cannot make it in this type of environment, how dare you, whoever, expect someone that is youth or senior to be able to do the same? And so, and, and let me tell you a little bit about Tacoma and Pierce County. Pierce County had the biggest rent increase in 2017. Out increased Sacramento, out increased Los Angeles, out increased Salt Lake 
Utah, out in Crease, Las Vegas. In Pierce County, 69% of all low-income households pay more than 30% of their income for housing expenses. 38% pay more than 50%. I found a house, I pay 90% of my income towards rent, and the only reason I am able to make it is because I have two adult children that help me. And the only reason we were that we're even in this position, even for me to be able to do this, is because I have my children to help me. It's not because of any organization. It's not because of anything else that's out here. It's only because of the people that are close to me. So, and I I work on African-American people that identify from the African diaspora issues. Black people are more likely to become homeless than any other people of any racial or ethnic background. Home ownership by race is 1.4 times higher for whites head of households than it is for blacks. Affordability for rates of homes is three time, 3.9 times higher than the median income. Since 2012, house, the median household income in Pierce County has increased by 10%, but the median sale prices for a home 108%. So like, I got a whole bunch of statistics, statistics for you. I can, you know what I mean? I got a lot to share, but I'm just telling you that the system is not made, it's not set up for people who actually want something for themselves to get it. Absolutely not. And I, I, mm, okay, here. (laughs) So I think that brings up a good point, though, because if we're talking about what does that mean when you're at the end of your career, your salary is not increasing, all these numbers that you just said about this increase of 10%, and and then we also think about the people who are taking advantage of people who are in these situations. So you have a medical situation, you're on a fixed income, somebody comes and says, I'll give you $275,000 in cash today for your house. And that sounds like a great deal, except for you, there's no house for you to buy anywhere else in Pierce County for $275,000. So there's, the, there's, these, there's all of these things that are kind of coming together. Um, so... There's also the, the realization of like society and technology and all these things are changing so fast that there's really these big differences between generationally how we've looked at retirement and you know where we want to live and how we want to live. And um, I think the other day when we were prepping for this conversation, Matt had talked about just even who wants to use senior sitters and the age in which people used to use sitters, senior sitters and now the age where people are like, I don't want to be over there. Like, I'm not old, you know, and, and the whole like 40 is the, you know, 30 is the new 20 and all of that. So um, my question is, um, what are some of the generational differences and how someone may, um, who is maybe 25 thinks about housing versus someone who is 50 versus someone who is 75 and, and the kind of services that they might want or the kind of community they might want to see. So I'm just gonna open that up to whoever wants to kind of take that question first. Well, I'll start from the, the far end of the spectrum, the older adult spectrum. Um, the seniors that I work with, um, the major fear they all express is, I don't want to die in a nursing home. That's what they'll all say. And so for those who are living in their current situation, typically they had chosen that to be their last place to live. Um, And as Adrian was saying, it's getting more and more challenging for folks on limited incomes. And the smart ones are looking at their rent and saying, 
okay, I got a 1.6% social security cost of living raise. That's $16 on $1,000. But my rent is going up $50 a year. So the smart ones are not just going to bed that night thinking everything's fine. They're thinking, geez, $50 a year for the next five years, I'm not going to have any place to live anymore. And we're seeing these huge increases and, and parts of town that were always generally available. I'm thinking of the McKinley Hill area. I've got clients living there in some apartments in just the last year, $200 a month rent increase, $50 added for water, sewer, and garbage that didn't exist any longer. Mm -hmm. So that population is really looking at numbers and it's not adding up for them. And for those that I mentioned in the rural areas, the idea of suddenly changing your whole environment and living in Tacoma, where typically the income-based rent properties are and the senior complexes are, that's something they don't even consider to be reasonable. And like Adrian was saying too, for those that are on limited social security incomes, especially the SSI population who get $800 a month, there's no place they can rent. Absolutely none. The places they could rent to have three, four, five-year-long waiting lists. So the idea for that group, 75 and older, moving, it's not even something we can put on the table. Until they're so ill, they have to go into care, and they can't safely live at home anymore. But as a willful choice, no. It doesn't, even it doesn't really appear on their radar screen. This is turning into a depressing conversation, but here we go. <laughs> And it, and it requires that depression. So, so you know, that's how we go through social therapy on, on things like this. This is, um, the, the bad news is that that social network that the younger population used to have or even the working population used to have, that has disappeared as well. Uh, a lot of the 30-something don't have the job security that perhaps their parents had. Mm -hmm. And they know that they have to change jobs. Now, imagine the same condition for communities of color where they have other issues that has affected them his historically, the segregation patterns, the, 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 op the oppression that they have faced. And now, treating all this population as if there is a solution for 75 and older that applies to everybody doesn't work. Even within African-American community, when you look at the statistics, it's the female head household that is most severely impacted by many of these social indicators that we look at. I think the dilemma that we have is the dilemma that there's an ideal of what we want, but what is in operation and the system that we have doesn't produce or doesn't get us there. Mm -hmm. So how do, we, how do we deal with this? How do we, how do we um, move forward? So let me see if I can move it a little bit into some directions here. There's a commitment that has to be made on how we're gonna lift everyone's boat. There has to be a commitment by us on at least pick a category. I'm 62 years old, I've been in the United States for 42 years, and it's the same topics that we talk about constantly. <laughs> and it seems like every generation just gives it a new language and more severity of language as we go forward. Transportation is not solved, housing is not solved. And as we have aged, we are seeing the consequences of what we didn't do. The, everything that we haven't done, now it's in our balance sheet. So here's how we move forward, in my humble opinion. <laughs> We begin to think about our cities for everyone, and that means start with something small, as small as a sidewalk being equally treated for every neighborhood. There are cities that they don't distinguish by income when they design their standards of their sidewalks. Simple, right? It, sound, it sounds simple, but let's see if we can do it. 
The next one is that displacement in the way it's practiced in the private market has to be talked about openly as an issue that we have to deal with. Is this doable? Is this something that we can commit to so the neighborhoods are not put onto themselves to defend for their family and for their neighbors, that as a city we look at this? Adrian was talking about affordability. Have you seen the income level and the job growth of this region and what we can afford with that money? The two largest growth categories in our jobs in our county are retail and food and hospitality. If you look at the average annual income of a person who works in those industries, they can't afford anything in terms of the one-third rule. Just like Adrian was talking about, they have to spend 60, 70, 80% of their income to stay here. If they don't want to stay here, and they do what Matt is talking about, that they end up going to rural areas in order to have cheaper housing, their access to job goes away when they're younger. They're, 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 the potential for mobility for them declines. And as they age in place, even if they stay there, then they have other problems they have to deal with. I think we are, by not doing something, some level of basic work, to at least stop the leakage. What we're gonna end up is that 20 years from now, which I will be a, seriously a senior person sitting across <laughs> here, 20 years from now, I'll be 82 years old, I'll be wondering what's gonna happen. And think of the people who are in their 60s now worrying about their children and what's gonna happen to them. So at some point, we need to all as a society agree on one or two things that we can do and start doing it. Thank you. So um, before I pass the, the mic to Adrian for one last time, um, I am going to ask everybody if you have questions. This is your kind of last chance. Um, and we're going to start um, asking the panelists the questions that you have. Um, Adrian, do you have any final words for us? The only thing I forgot to mention also is that a $100 increase in rent equals 15% increase in homelessness. Um, yeah. And that there are grassroots organizations that I work with that are doing stuff around land and housing and all that kind of stuff. Um, and I can put you in contact with them if you want to be supportive and participate. Um, and other than that, I'm just going to, I'm just, I ain't going to. Thank you. Um, I also think one thing that we didn't get to talk about, and I, we have a couple more um, forums, and maybe we'll get to, to talk about it then, is the idea of, you know, we have younger people coming out of school with massive amounts of student loan debt, and then those people are waiting longer before they have kids because of the amount of debt they have, which means you're going to have a generation of people that are going to be taking care of their parents and their young children at the same time while still trying to manage, you know, student loan debt. And, and Dr. Medeiros and I have talked about, like, even trying to buy a home and some of the things that provide some stability are being pushed off further and further and further, which also means that their retirement is getting pushed off further and all of these things. So it's, it's this compounding effect that at some point we're going to have to just stop and deal with the problem. And if we don't, the things we're seeing now are just going to further exacerbate. So um, just wanted to add that. And uh, I think Callie's bringing me some questions. Hi, I'm Eric Hanberg, host of the Channel 253 podcast, We Art Tacoma. And I've been a member of TAPCO Credit Union since I was a kid, really. My parents set up a savings account for me, and I've had that account with them ever since. In fact, my first credit card wasn't from a big bank. It was from TAPCO, and I still have that, too. 
What I appreciate about TAPCO is they are intensely local. Just like Channel 253, TAPCO keeps its focus on Tacoma and Pierce County. They have easy-to-reach branches and ATMs in the Tacoma area, and when I don't want to drive, I just use their online or mobile banking. To this day, TAPCO helps parents teach kids good savings habits. The Moolah Kids Club teaches kids about savings, not only through interest on their money, but with special prizes and discounts at local attractions. So if you want to help your kids start a savings account the same way my parents did, check out our local credit union at tapcocu.org. My thanks to TAPCO for their support of this podcast and Channel 253. So unincorporated areas are often lower rents. What are the, what are the costs that come from living rurally for low-income individuals, people with disabilities, and seniors? So what we typically see, um, at one time, the big affordable aspect of being out in the rural areas um, was the trend to typically buying some land and putting a mobile home on it or living in a mobile home community because the, the, the maintenance cost on the land and the space rent was generally pretty affordable. That's changing. Many of the municipalities are actively trying to eliminate mobile home communities and they're trying to put these very intensively managed neighborhoods, and you've seen them driving around town. They're big two-story houses on tiny little lots where you could open the window and slap hands with your neighbor. That's what we see all over the county. And as those become more prominent and people move in, we're seeing kind of the trickle down from King County with that. So if you drive out in areas like out along Meridian and you head east, I think it's on like 208th Street, there used to be a huge forest there that forest is gone. It, as far as you eyes can see, they're putting in roads, houses out there. That's overflow coming down from King County. So their affordability now is affecting ours. So what used to be kind of affordable in rural areas is either being eliminated in terms of the mobile home communities and they're actively trying to push those out. Or where you're living, great, your house value goes up. But as, as the doctor was saying, so do your taxes and insurance and everything else costs go up. So those are the limitations we're seeing. And as far as building affordable housing in those areas, that's just not going on. There's not senior apartment buildings going up. There's a lot of private pay senior retirement centers that go up and private pay assisted living, but we're talking three, four, five, six thousand dollars $6,000 a month to live there. Not, not practicable for our people. Um, so how are services for older adults different than those for people with disabilities, and how are cities and counties held accountable to those services? We try to serve both populations in our aging and disabilities model. Um, not every county in the state looks at it that way. Many of them still have the old uh, senior information and assistance model. Um, but it's even more challenging with the younger population. And again, it does sound very pessimistic because there are rules that allow senior apartments and senior housing to go up for 55 and over, 62 and over. Um, the younger disabled senior housing really gets lost in that mix. So if it's a dire situation for the senior population in terms of finding affordable housing, it's even worse for the younger population. And there's some, there's some bias that goes against that because society in many ways um, looks at the younger disabled as being chemically dependent or mentally ill and therefore not someone they want to have in their apartment complexes. And again, this isn't um, 
a negative specific I'm saying everywhere, but the demand is so great that if an apartment manager is looking at someone has any question, is this guy or this woman going to cause a problem, there's five more people in line behind them looking for housing. So they can easily say, no, not you, and find a reason to say no. And that's what we face practically on the ground when it comes to the younger disabled. So this question, the last question I have is, does Tacoma have specific goals for senior affordable housing? And I was going to say, I, I, this might be my question, um, and I do not have specific numbers on that. We um, Once we pass the ordinance for affordable housing, we have specific goals around affordable housing, which is that we want to create 22,000 um, new units. Um, but we have not figured out how many of those need to be for seniors and how, how does that all come together in the Affordable Housing Action Strategy right now. But we're working on trying to, to parse out what those numbers are. Um, I mean, obviously affordability is a huge issue and we, we know we need more housing at all levels. Um, so it's not, and, if, and sometimes when we talk about affordable housing, people tend to think of low income housing and we need a lot of that but we need housing at all income levels. We don't have, and, and it kind of goes back to what Matt was just saying, if we don't have housing at all levels, then people rent down, and they're more attractive than the people who need that housing, which then pushes them further out of housing, they don't have other options. So while we need you know, to do some targeted development of affordable housing, we also need to be thinking about how we're building houses at every income level that we have in the city. So, Can I just touch on that a little mm -hmm. bit? The low income housing and the affordable units that are out here are, are mostly occupied by higher income household yeah. populations. Yep. And those higher income populations can't buy a house because the houses are too high. Right. And so it's that, it's that effect. So yeah. if they're taking all the affordable housing and the low-income housing, where is someone like me supposed to go? Yep, absolutely. I'll say one thing, too. Some of you might be wondering, isn't there a Section 8 housing program? There is, and Adrian could probably add, but I'll just say that <laughs> in the whole 16 years I worked at the county, I was able to get one person a Section 8 certificate, a husband and wife, and that was after a wait of eight years. Yep. One person. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'll just say this. In Tacoma, Tacoma Housing Authority in the next 10 years will be the biggest landlord and will also be the only one offering the lowest affordability as far as rent is, which I think is sick. Um, and 40% of vouchers actually come back because they can't Find a, a unit that is acceptable or will, or will um, validate the their voucher. Yeah. Um, and they used to have a program where if you were on Section 8, you could possibly buy a house. They don't have that program anymore either. Yep. So, Dr. Medeiros, oh, no. um, what are two or three things that cities should focus on or pay for to help with this issue? Which issue are we talking about? Because we've got like five <laughs> issues. <laughs> Housing, particularly for seniors. Um, um, I think one of, the, one of the challenges that even City of Tacoma is just beginning to think about this. So this is not something that has been on people's uh, radar. 
Historically, uh, public support for senior housing, especially in, in affordable arena, is much higher than just generically talking about affordable housing. So if you, if you were going to uh, succeed in something, actually senior citizen housing needs are something that the public tends to respond to because we tend to think, if we are going to respond, because we tend to a little bit think about our own elderly age too, right? So just a little bit of a sympathy for ourselves, we begin to do that. But there's a lot of moral judgment that goes into that, and that's why public sector has a role to play. In that sense, it cannot be something that we do a small percentage of it. There are a couple of things about Pierce County that are challenging, and I don't know if it's on everyone's radar. We are the youngest county compared to the counties around us by simply by median age. In the United States, every county and every part of the country is aging. We are aging on the average of about two years per 10 years, which doesn't sound like a lot to people, but if you think about it, a country that always thought of itself as a young country is gradually graying. We need to look at our nations that we know and see what they have done for their elderly because they are there already. We are just catching up with them. Now, the one thing about our, our county is the following. Most of the economic development, most of our thinking is how to get that 30 something to come and live here, which means we're gonna make our housing conditions worse. And so as time goes by, the competition is going to come not only for the people who come from King County, but it's going to be from everybody else who is coming to this county to be close enough to all those jobs. For somebody who is coming from another part of the country, commuting 20 miles, that sounds to them like it's not much. So they are more likely to look at that. But they're not looking at big houses, they're looking at the smaller houses, they're not looking at the sort of things that we regionally may prefer. Housing market is going to go towards people, the private sector, toward the people who are willing to pay the down payment down and pay the high rents for those places. Look at what we have built and how fast it has, it has filled up. Now, that means for the public sector, that becomes a double, doubling down on affordable housing. We need to begin to support our public housing, and, and I, mean it, I don't mean it by housing authority, I mean public sector as a whole needs to begin to think about every inch of this county needs to begin to think about that. That's why we need a regional, not just Tacoma-specific affordable housing conversation, yeah. because frankly, if you don't do it that way, I have a warning for you. If, you, if we don't do it that way, <laughs> there will be income segregation 30 years from now because affordable yep. housing will go to very specific small pockets of areas. Yep. And that, yes. there will be another group of people here sitting trying to figure that one out <laughs> and how it happened. Yep, absolutely. Thank you. Um, so, sh um, and I don't know if this is for Dr. Medeiros or Matt, because it's a, kind of a policy question, but should cities and counties prevent private senior developments and is there, you know, I think there's, there's, you know, what, where's the line between what's necessary and what's, you know, could be seen as predatory? Since I don't have a government <laughs> job, I can explain that one. <laughs> yeah, I, don't, I won't go to an office and somebody fire me. I have academic freedom. I can say whatever I want. Yeah. So here go we go. Ahead. <laughs> you see, I passed yeah. that one. I'm like, yeah. nope. Exactly. Um, <laughs> uh, I'm challenging. I'm about to. So here I go. <laughs> I think the private sector will always do what the private sector does, preventing them or not preventing them. If they don't build it here, they build somewhere else. 
Here's where I think it's important. Regulating that is really important as well. The same way that we're trying to think about how to get affordable housing into the for-profit sector, so it's not just nonprofits doing affordable housing, we need to be thinking about how do you do mixed income cities for the love of God. So this is something that people in their senior age, they shouldn't be saying, if you pay $6,000, you live over there. If you're on social security, you live over here, right? So. If, if we are going to go move forward with this, I don't think preventing the private sector from doing what they're doing is going to get us a single unit for low-income seniors anyway. Mm -hmm. So what we need to begin to think about is to how to get them into that process. So what I have talked about in affordable housing, it applies <laughs> here. Incentive zoning is what one of the things that cities now do. It's not called inclusionary because people tend to react to that badly. But so we call it incentive zoning. So it sounds like we're doing something positive. So, or giving them something. So in some ways, what is really important here is to begin to incentivize more seriously on how, what we want, the social good and the public good that we want, that we agree with. Private market has a role to play in it as well. We are a country run by the private market. Our public sector can come up with vouchers but the vouchers are not enough when the private market is not accommodating it. The same thing goes for senior citizens. So my humble opinion is public sector does its best job to make sure that the senior housing is not forgotten and the public knows that you are investing. And in the private sector, let's incentivize them so they begin to think about how healthy it is for everybody to be together as opposed to segregated by every category we can imagine. All right. Um, <laughs> no, I would just add that, yeah, I'm fully in agreement with that. And we, what really needs to happen, if possible, is that they, there is more development of housing that has rent based upon income, percentage-wise. Because of the senior communities that we do have, even the ones most generous run by nonprofits are increasing the amount of income they require to rent from them. That's pricing out many of our senior and disabled. So it has to be rent based upon income. Otherwise, it's destined not to serve the people that need that housing the most. Thank you. So we have just a few minutes left. I'm going to give each panelist an opportunity to kind of, this has been kind of a depressing conversation, but, um, you know, the first, the first, uh, step in coming up with the cure is uh, acknowledging the problem and having an honest conversation about it. So Dr. Medeiros, we'll kick off with you. What are your kind of closing remarks and maybe what's, what in your opinion is the next step? What, what's well, the, next? the regional effort, I must say that uh, compared to five years ago, I've been here six, compared to five years ago, there's more of a recognition of housing and housing being an issue and homelessness being an issue. It's more talked about, there's more urgency in public about it. And what I am encouraged by is that various jurisdictions in our region have begun to realize that this is not something that happens in one city or one county, it happens everywhere. So I think we need to push and sustain that regional conversation. But the thing that's really important in this process that is the added component is the senior housing and the seniors' future in this region. I think it goes beyond housing issues. It goes it goes, it's every aspect of our existence to begin to think about our cities as everyone living in it, not just the young and the 30-something. This is the part that we have lost our soul because we only focus mm -hmm. on whoever is 30-something and it is in specific kind of jobs. 
And that's what we're building our cities for, as opposed to everyone who has been here. Thank you. Adrian? The only thing I want to say is um, when I tried to be a part of these conversations, I wasn't allowed or I wasn't listened to. And so if you are talking about issues, make sure to uplift and empower those that are displaced or feel those issues um, and don't take our voices for granted and don't take our lived experiences for granted and make sure that there is space or room for people like me at the table or be one of those people that can help me create my own table. Thank you. Thank you. I'd like to just conclude and say, um, you know, we do rely on you folks, uh, the residents of our county, uh, to really be the, the strong voices and advocates for the work we're doing. You know, at the county office where I work, we do a lot of work on uh, foreclosure prevention for seniors living in their homes, getting them on tax exemptions and deferrals to kind of preserve their homes, putting care into their homes. We're really trying to maintain that philosophy of aging in place. But we can't create new housing stock out of nothing. Um, we can't create the right trends in housing to make things work. So whatever voice you can add on the issues you've heard today, I really encourage you to be an advocate. We're coming into an election year. Go to town halls, ask questions, demand answers. And if we all work together, we can hopefully move things in a more positive direction than it's going right now. So. Thank you so much. Um, I want to thank everybody for coming. I want you guys to remind all your friends to listen to the podcast of this conversation. Uh, <laughs> and uh, don't get me and Matt in trouble. Um, and so, but yeah, share this conversation and keep having this conversation and come back next month so we can finish the second part of this conversation. I'm going to bring Hallie up. Yeah, I would invite everyone to give a round of applause for our panelists, moderator, all the sponsors today. And as we made mention of, um, right after this, uh, Evelyn Lopez is going to bring Ken Miller of Dadu Housing or Development and um, Joy Stanford of Shared Housing Services, which is another uh, direct service agency here in Tacoma, to delve deeper into those topics that rose to the top in today's discussion and um, will just be another layer to this. And as Matt mentioned and Tanisha said, just keep the conversation going. Next month, February 21st, we'll be talking more specifically around transportation and um, the ways that sort of shuttle services or new multimodal technology is helping or maybe hurting this idea of thinking about growing cities in a more inclusive and accessible way. Um, thank you all so much for coming and have a great rest of your day. Channel 253 is sponsored by Alaska Airlines. I'm Nate Bowling, and I fly Alaska. To book your next trip, go to alaskaair.com. The Crossing Division podcast is part of the Channel 253 network. Check out our other shows, Nerd Farmer, Interchangeable White Ladies, Citizen Tacoma, Founders B-Team, We Art Tacoma, and What Say You? This is Channel 253.